It's been a week. When I went in, he shut the door, and I noticed Bobby Angle, who is the head of Mr. Trump's security detail, sitting in a chair, just looking somewhat discombobulated and a little lost. Never met Bobby Angle. Can relate, though. We are living in worrisome times. The economy, the guns, the pandemic, the war, the ex-president grabbed the steering wheel, allegedly. It's affecting us. We are discombobulated and a little lost. Also anxious, depressed, not sleeping, and not doing so well addressing it. The National Institute of Mental Health says one in five Americans suffers from a mental illness. Coming up on Today Explained, the doctor once known as the country's psychiatrist on what we are getting so wrong about mental health and how to fix it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Today, today explain. It's Today Explained. I'm Noelle King. There is a difference between anxiety and worry and discombobulation and what's called an SMI or a serious mental illness. So maybe during the pandemic, you realized it was too much and you needed a therapist and maybe it was hard to find. But if you have an SMI, you've known that for a long time because you've likely been dealing with our broken system for years. From Brooklyn, Bassi Ikbi. Right before Bassi Ikbi found herself navigating that system, she was at a high point in her career. She'd landed a spot on HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam. I fear that you will never sleep. That like these fingers long and too thin to hold rings or commitments, you will inherit your mother's insomnia. Energy, creativity, and talent drove Bassi Ikbi. Also, the insomnia. I still think you deserve more than this threat of me as your mother, still attempting her own world of colored things. But child, just promise me that you will be eventually. I need your possibility like I need a night worth sleeping for. Thank you. Her insomnia was part of a mental illness, and she'd spend years navigating a healthcare system that even doctors say is profoundly broken. Bazi Ikbi had these fixes for when things got dicey with her mind. One thing that I realized is that I had figured out ways to make the way my brain works work for me, meaning that when I had the energy, I would do all of the things. When I started to get low energy, I would kind of disappear, not go out as much, and use that time to just get my energy back. And I was able to do that because I wasn't in school. I I was an artist. I didn't have a set schedule. But the fixes were temporary. I was on tour with Deaf Poetry Jam. And when I was on tour, no matter what, I had to be backstage by 7 p.m. And I had to be on stage by 8. And I had to be awake at X hour for rehearsal or to get on a plane or to get on a bus to get to the next city. And I wasn't able to set my schedule around my moods. And I 
realize these coping mechanisms were completely impossible on tour. And I started getting really withdrawn and I stopped eating, stopped sleeping, and I just stopped talking to everyone. And a lot of them were like, okay, so, you know, the fame is getting to her, you know, stuff like that. And I didn't know what was going on. I just know that this way that I usually feel for a couple of weeks, couple of months was just sort of here and I couldn't pretend myself out of it. One night in Chicago, I couldn't stop crying. I was getting myself up off the hotel floor and I walked out of the hotel to get to the theater and I didn't have a coat on and it was freezing winter in Chicago, January in Chicago. I get backstage and I'm trying to give myself this pep talk. Like, you can do this, like just wash your face, put your makeup on, put your costume on. You're going to be great. You're going to be fine. And I just couldn't stop crying. And I somehow ended up underneath the sink in my dressing room, in the fetal position, just bawling my eyes out, just crying. And the stage manager, Alice, came into my dressing room. She literally crawled underneath the sink with me and like held me. And she said, if you don't get help, you're going to die. I had never thought of it in those terms, but I immediately knew what that meant. When she was 27, she got her first diagnosis, bipolar 2 disorder. Had no idea what it was, never heard of it. I knew I wasn't bipolar because I knew what bipolar was and that that wasn't me. And uh, I remember telling him, I can't have that because I'm Black. (laughs) I was like, I've never heard of it and I've never heard of any Black person with it. So it's something else. What was your understanding of what bipolar was that made you so sure you didn't have it? Uh, it was it was people who were crazy. They were, you know, found walking the street naked and all these stereotypical iterations of what a crazy person was like. Because uh, when I was diagnosed, I didn't tell my my parents for another five or six months. And uh, I remember my father going and doing research and uh, looking at the symptoms and he could he could identify each symptom from me growing up and I remember him feeling so guilty about not being able to do anything and I was like dad you don't know what you don't know like there's no way for you to have spotted that because no one understood who I was or what I was going through and, you know, me dropping out of college and suddenly moving to New York. Like, all that stuff made sense to him, uh, but it didn't make sense to him at the time. And my mother took it much harder. Uh, She, I think, was very afraid of what it would mean for the rest of my life and how people would treat me and what it would mean for people to know. Like, she was very adamant that I don't tell anybody about it. Uh, but I, I see that 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 was that came from fear. Can you walk me through what the treatment was like when you first got that diagnosis? You know, I was able to call Dr. Goodman and say, this one isn't working, it makes me feel this. And he would talk to me, like I'd call him on like 
Thanksgiving and he would take my call and he would walk me through. And, and I just felt like I felt cared for. And that definitely helps the way that I approached my own illness. And I think that had I run into doctors that treated me more like a statistic or made me feel more like just somebody on a conveyor belt and they would forget me as soon as I walked out the door, it, it would have been much more difficult to accept my diagnosis and it would have been a lot more difficult mm. to accept my life afterwards. Bussy, out of genuine curiosity, what kind of insurance did you have? At that time, I had whatever the theater actor's insurance was. That's how I got them. But because I wasn't working, I lost that insurance. And all the money that I made on tour, I started paying them out of pocket. Um, and I, of course, ran out of money. And I had to make a decision between therapy and medication. And wow. I hated medication. So I, I chose therapy and stopped taking my medication and um, ended up in the hospital in November of 2004. And then I stopped taking medication and stopped going to therapy for years. Um, a really good friend of mine died uh, of cancer. And I wanted to, I just wanted to feel it. I didn't want to feel like medication was making me take it well. I didn't want to take it well. That started a spiral that lasted from... 2005 to 2010, when I was hospitalized for the second time. Now I'm back in Maryland, you know, living with my, with my family. And I currently have Maryland Medicaid, but Maryland Medicaid, it's great. I, I've never felt as though I wasn't getting good help or good treatment or medical care because of it. And part of the reason why we stayed in Maryland, instead of going back to New York, was because the healthcare system here, the state healthcare system here, is much better than it is anywhere else in the country, I believe. I'm the healthiest I've ever been in my life. 2017 was my last serious depressive episode. One of my greatest victories is that about a year ago, I got a credit card. For the first time, like, I want to say 20 years, because I would just use them constantly. I'm very irresponsible and reckless when it comes to money. And being able to get one and to have one and to use it in a way that normal people, quote unquote, would use it, that's been huge for me. The victories are the things that kind of keep me going because I want more of them. So much of mental health is focused on the illness and not what happens during treatment and what happens after treatment. And I think that's more important to know what it looks like to live with as opposed to constantly being reminded what it is to suffer from. Bazi knows she's lucky that she got the care she needed to treat her mental illness. Why do so many people not? We have an answer coming up. Support for the show today comes from Mint Mobile. There's lots of ways to spend $15. Like, I don't know, what would I spend $15? Maybe like a really good burrito and a drink, because I think $15 for just the burrito would be a little steep, but with a drink, you know, probably about that. Anyway, you could also 
put your $15 towards a new phone plan from guess who, Mint Mobile. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. How much does your cell phone plan cost? Probably not $15. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash explained. That is mintmobile.com slash explained. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash explained. They really want me to say that. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month, obviously. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Jay Explained comes from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. If you like spy thrillers or indeed Elizabeth Moss, then you might want to check out FX's The Veil. It's an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. Oh, I'll go. One woman has a secret, same here, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. One evening in May 2015, Dr. Thomas Insull was in Portland, Oregon, giving a presentation to a room full of mental health advocates. He's a neuroscientist and a psychiatrist, and for 13 years he was the country's psychiatrist. That's what people sometimes call the director of the National Institute of Mental Health. Anyway, he's presenting to this group, and... One of the parents got up and said, you know, you just don't get it. Uh, I have a 23-year-old son with schizophrenia, and he's been hospitalized five times. He's been incarcerated three times. He made two suicide attempts. He's currently homeless. Our house is on fire, and you're talking to us about the chemistry of the paint. I was defensive. I mean, at first I thought, well, you know, it takes a long time. This is research is a marathon. It's not a sprint, and uh, we need to know much more before we can do much better. But I also recognized that he was speaking for a lot of people who had that same feeling that this wasn't just a science problem. This was an urgent public health crisis that didn't just require that we know more, but that we do better with what we know right now. And that urgency uh, is not the way we do science, generally. At Dr. Insel's direction, the NIMH and its billions of dollars in government funding had pivoted to focus less on behavioral research and more on genetic research into what causes illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And they made some stunning scientific advances while looking into genes. The problem was Dr. Insel started to realize those advances weren't doing very much at all for patients. Science was looking for causes. Millions of people, he says, were suffering the effects. 17 years ago, the federal government established a research project with the ambitious goal of mapping the entire human genome. When I arrived at NIMH in 2002, uh, the big breakthrough was the completion of the Human Genome Project about six months later. Genetic mapping researchers know more than ever 
about the hereditary influences behind cancer and heart disease and diabetes and many other conditions. Every area was looking at that new map we had of the human genome and saying, how can we use that to understand not only the inheritance and the biology, but the opportunity to identify new targets for treatment? In scope and long-term potential, the Human Genome Project has been compared to the Apollo Project. Sometimes that works really well. And in the case of autism, I think we were able to find a range of new targets, some of which are now leading to new treatments. What was surprising in the studies of anxiety disorders that may be highly heritable or bipolar illness, which is you know more heritable than hypertension or diabetes, uh, is that we found lots of signals, but no kind of, no treatment targets. The signals we found were signals about risk, and there were so many of them. Actually, rather than finding just a few, uh, we found so many, each of which contributed a very small amount. So uh, was that a mistake to go after that? Well, of course not. But the whole nature of science, the reason we call it research, is we don't know what we're going to find. In this case, we found lots of stuff, but we didn't find what we were looking for, which was the, the kind of high-profile, high-impact uh, molecular target that could be used for a new class of treatments. And one of the points I make in writing the book is, we've got pretty good treatments right now. For me, the egregious piece of this is not that we don't have anything to offer. It's got plenty of stuff to offer. We're just not doing it. And again, so again, this is not an NIMH problem. This is a problem of a health system that's badly broken. I think many Americans would agree with you that getting health care feels like a maze. But psychiatry is also, as you know, a nascent field. Just a couple decades ago, people would be treated with lobotomies. How far have we come in providing therapies that are safe and effective? We've come very far. We have medications that are uh, show efficacy that they have a significant, statistically significant effect in a randomized clinical trial. And that's been established for over 20-some antidepressants and for multiple antipsychotics. We also have pretty good data on safety. The difference, though, between efficacy and effectiveness is what these medications do in the real world. If people don't take them, they may be hmm. efficacious, but they're not effective. And that's often the case with these medicines where, um, in some cases, in some studies, you know, 50% of people stop their medication before it's shown its full value. But why? Why do people stop taking their medication? Two main reasons. One is because the medicine works and the symptoms go away. Mm. So why wouldn't you stop it? Um, and, and we have a model that tends to think that this is just about treating symptoms. And so you don't need it if you don't have the symptoms. The second is that almost all the medications in psychiatry have side effects that people don't like. They're not, you know, we've traded one set of side effects for another. A lot of people have that sense of brain fog or they're sedated or they gain weight or they have sexual side effects. And, you know, nobody wants that. So it's um, it's all often this very awkward balance between finding something that works and something that doesn't 
have a side effect that makes you feel worse. And, and it's, those are tough decisions to make. And there's a lot of trial and error and stop this one, start that one, change the dose, put two medicines together. The point I've tried to make in the book is that when we talk about treatment for these illnesses, we need to start talking about more than medication. We have psychological treatments. We have other treatments that are, are really quite important and can be effective and also safe. And, and there's no reason not to combine them. So optimal care would involve both medication and psychological treatment. Uh, recovery is something very different. It's helping people to really build a life. And, and, and I can't stress how significant this is for people with serious mental illness. And the recovery model, as I talk about, requires the three Ps, uh, that is people, place, and purpose. Um, these aren't covered by insurance. There's no pill for this, but social support, having a sanctuary where you can recover, where you can, you can heal, and then having a reason to recover, having a purpose, having a mission. Uh, incredibly important for young people who have a mental illness to feel like they have a purpose as well. And our healthcare system rarely engages on those three Ps or uh, understands the importance of doing so much more than just uh, pushing another medication. I'm wondering, in an ideal world, this gentleman who has a son who's struggling with schizophrenia and ricocheting between hospitalization and homelessness and incarceration, what kind of outcome in an ideal world, in what it sounds like you're saying is potentially a buildable world, what kind of outcome does that lead to for him? It's a year, potentially multi-year commitment to making sure that he gets decent health care, that he has a decent place to live, that he's getting um, not just medication, but he has to be on medication most of the time. Most individuals are going to need that, but much more comprehensive, what we call whole person care that deals with a range of issues, some of which may be cognitive, some of which uh, may have to do with the fact that he needs job training or he needs an education uh, to be able to get the skills that will allow him not to be unemployed and disabled. I have sent to the Congress today a series of proposals to help fight mental illness and mental retardation. The United States really took on this problem in the early 1960s under President Kennedy, who in the last act that he signed, the Community Mental Health Act, on October 31st of 1963, before he was assassinated in November. With respect to mental illness, our chief aim is to get people out of state custodial institutions and back into their communities and homes without hardship or danger. He said when he signed the act, he said, you know, the, the folks with, with mental illness should no longer be alien to our affections or separated from our communities. It will be possible within a decade or two to reduce the number of patients now under custodial care by 50% or more. That didn't happen for a lot of reasons, although it started to. But what's interesting is we're back at it again. And over the last two or three years, 
for the first time really since the 60s and 70s, the federal government is creating these comprehensive community centers. This unassuming building in the South Bronx is what's known as a clubhouse. Its members have severe mental illness. Who have really hit what we call stage four of mental illness when they are truly disabled and have been homeless and incarcerated and you know really not functioning. It was three years ago when Denise Velez arrived. She says homeless and in a deep depression. Because of them helping me with the job and everything, I was able to find like my self-worth and you know my courage and my will to get back out there, get back to work, you know, because I felt worthless. Giving them a place where they can recover between having clubhouses and then having these clinics that are in the community that have no wrong door, that are uh, able to follow people for periods of time and to ensure that they're getting uh, optimal medical care they're getting the kinds of supports for this kind of whole person care approach that they need. I take a couple of classes each day. This semester I'm focusing predominantly on my socialization skills by both taking classes where I get to practice both speaking and listening to others. That's beginning to happen and it's really, to me, it's a very hopeful sign that uh, we have both the national and in many states the state leadership uh, to make sure that people with these illnesses are no longer alien to our affections or apart from our communities. Dr. Thomas Insull's new book is called Healing, Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health. Bazi Ikbi has a book out too. It's called I'm Telling the Truth, But I'm Lying. Today's show was produced by Halima Shah, edited by Matthew Collette, engineered by Afim Shapiro, and fact-checked by Tori Dominguez. I'm Noel King. It's Today Explained.